Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back to the Formed Book Club. We are going to discuss the music of Christendom by Susan Friese. Uh, I believe we have some different perspectives on this, which may come out during our discussion. Uh, I want to preface this by saying it's a book on music, and she refers in here to many different pieces of music. And ideally, if we were some kind of very expensive, uh, you know, video podcasting enterprise, we'd in- intersperse these things in our discussion. However, since we're not, what I recommend is you, for these pieces she refers to, go to the Internet. And by the way, I recommend DuckDuckGo instead of Google. DuckDuckGo is a search engine. It includes Google and about 20 others, but it doesn't suppress things or rank things according to its own algorithms like Google does. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. So I, I recommend DuckDuckGo. I don't have any, I don't own any stock in it. I don't know who they are. I just know that it's a more objective search engine than Google has become. So uh, she has a prelude here. I notice that in the prelude, there are three major figures quoted. Uh, St. John Henry Newman, uh, Pope Benedict, and Joseph Pierce. <laughs> well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you ordered them in that hierarchical order. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and on page three, Cardinal Ratzinger says, in his quote there, next to the saints, the art which the church has produced is the only real apologia, or defense of and, you know, expression of, for, for history. And finally, for together, beauty and love form the true consolation in this world. Isn't that true? Yes. I mean, if you have someone you love or people you love, your family, your friends, your wife, your children, and so on, that's a tremendous consolation. Okay. If you go out into nature and watch the sunset, look at the flowers, see the trees, that's a consolation too. Or hear a beautiful piece of music. Yeah. It's only when you watch TV that you get discouraged. Oh. <laughs> or go on the internet too much. That's right. Uh, so... Uh, let's start right away with this uh, question. Vivian, you mentioned before the, the uh, broadcast here, the recording, that to you this does not seem like a book for the average Catholic. It's more detailed. It's more uh, for musical uh, aficionado or something like that. Well, maybe uh, aficionado, maybe not. But if you're a student of music, you're going to understand her much more than I can. And and I'm not alone in that opinion uh, our tech support over here, who is a musician, uh, felt this, uh, thinks the same way about the book. So I'm just going to say that by way of encouragement for the people out there who, like me, are not a student of music and might find uh, sometimes this little tough sledding that uh, you might have to just persevere and see how you can benefit from reading. Okay, well, I, I'm not a musician either. I tried to play the banjo unsuccessfully. But I think I'm even more a musician than Joseph is. Perhaps I'm wrong on that. But I, I found it instructive to just kind of see the the procession of music and how it went from the Greeks and then Gregorian chant and then Middle Ages and polyphony. So I I was kind of fascinated by what she has to say, even though I can't grasp it all. 
Right. I, I like kind of seeing it. Right. 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 If I if I can say basically that I I, I first one I'm agreeing with both of you, which is maybe unusual. <laughs> yourself. Um, you disagree, and, but and, that's and, okay. What I would say is that I'm an autodidact, you know, and, and one of the reasons that I've made progress is by reading books that are forced me to go into the deep end. Um, and I'm not a student of music, and certainly some of this language I'm not going to understand unless I learn to read music, and I'm not likely to do that. So this is always going to be somewhat beyond me, but I am, I am nonetheless willing. Now, when I first started reading theology and philosophy, I knew nothing about theology and philosophy. I am willing to accept and embrace that a book on music is going to have an uh, 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 aspect of expecting some knowledge of the reading of music. And if I don't have it, then I'm not going to blame the author of the book. Um, I'm going to say, OK, well, clearly I can't engage this on the level that I need to or should do, but I'm going to get the best I can out of it. And if I can just say that the opening, the opening paragraph of the prelude, and I love by the way she called it a prelude and not a preface, I mean it's a book on music, I think it sums up what it's trying to achieve and I do think it succeeds, at least largely. Is music something that merely expresses emotion as many people believe? So is it relativistic, subjective? Is it something ephemeral, something mystical, beyond description? Is it something frivolous, something purely for entertainment? Or does music embody and represent a rational order? As we traverse the history of Western music, we would examine how some of the above questions were answered at various points in history. So this is a work of history, it's a work of philosophy. So, you know, it, uh, it, as well as being a, a work about music, and we go straight into that one of quote by Newman, when he says, music is the expression of ideas greater and more profound than any in the, in the visible world. Ideas which center indeed in him whom Catholicism manifests. So we have this you know, great saint talking about the, the, what music as an expression of ideas greater and more profound than any in the visible world. In other words, music is a gateway to metaphysics. You know, so I, I, and then you, and then Father's already read that wonderful quote from Pope Benedict, which is one of my favorites, where he connects love and beauty, which is something I really would love more people to write on. You know. Um. Well, let us then, uh, because I think Susan Tracy definitely knows musical history and has a philosophical mind, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Let's see what we can extract from this book as you go through it that will be of value to anyone, even those who may be put off a bit by the musical details. Good idea. There's short chapters, but they're, they're, so far they're quite good in terms of historical succession here. The first one is on the ancient Greeks. I want to point out something on page 7, uh, end of that paragraph that begins at the top of the page or continues at the top of the page. Pythagoras and his disciples are said to have discovered the numerical correlations determining the fundamental, the fundamental intervals of music, the octave, the fifth, the fourth, the sixth. But notice something. Music is basically sound, and it has different frequencies. And if you have a string and you vibrate it, you can get all sorts of vibrations, sorts of wave motion in there. But the string, it, if you go to an octave, it will be, there'll be two waves per unit instead of one. And then you get to these thirds and fifths. But anywhere in between that, you get this rippling effect. It's just kind of chaos. Well, to me, the interesting thing is that those intervals, which give us the 12-note diatonic scale, which we have, 12 notes from C to C, from C to shining C, C to sounding C, 
are the only intervals you can, because you can make intervals anywhere you want. You've got from, from 440 cycles, which is an A, up to, you know, 880, whatever, and you can divide that any way you want. It's just a bunch of uh, frequencies. But if you divide it into 12 in a certain way, you get certain notes which, on a string, will give you a real pattern set of chaos. Without that 12-note scale, you do not have harmony. And that's why there's no harmony in the East. In India or in China, they got a pentatonic scale. You can't, none of those five notes within the octave will give you that harmony, which you only get in the 12-note scale. Now, why is it that we, as human beings, uh, find that pleasing to the ear? I'm not sure the answer to that question, but I know that visually, when you see the strings vibrating and you see chaos and then ah, you get that, and then chaos and then three, and then chaos and then four, there's something in the way God made us or evolution shaped us or whatever that makes harmonic notes pleasing to the ear. And much as I want to approve of or appreciate the cultures outside the West, they did not discover this stuff. By the way, the next division, which will allow harmony, is 29 notes. 12 is the first. 29, I don't know what comes after that, but you couldn't have a piano with 20 notes, notes per octave. So the, the 12-note scale is really the, the basis for any possible harmony in instrumental music. Uh, and so Pythagoras and his you know, followers, they discovered this beautiful relation of order within, not disorder, but order within unorder, let's put it that way. What, what I loved about this uh, this chapter uh, is that, uh, basically following on from what you said, Father, is the connection between music and mathematics, uh, and therefore the, the connection between music and reason. So answering those, uh, those first questions, is it purely subjective, you know, is it purely emotional, or is there some ratio behind it? Well, there's ratio, there's ratio behind it here that's what it, what we're talking about and then i also love the way that she shows just in about five pages how the early church fathers um or is that the next chapter <laughs> she mentioned boethius here boethius is very important yeah, St. clements pope st clement the first and then uh uh st clement of alexandria how they basically took from plato and then of course how boethius uh in his book on uh, on music um and his treatise on music again takes from Plato. So there's this uh, this understanding of this connection between between uh, how the, the Jews between Athens and Rome. And uh, and I, again, what I love about it is about five pages. And for pe people such as I that know very little about this, you know, you learn a great deal without going to too much effort, and which is great. You know, I want to go back a bit to my remarks about the 12-tone scale, because you can divide between octaves differently. Now, from 440, which is an A, to 880, you can divide by 12. But then 880 to 1760, you divide by 12, and you got a lot more wavelengths, not wavelengths, but frequency in there. And so there's actually a complicated formula by which they divide the scale. It has to do with the square root of 12. And you can never divide it in such a way that it's perfect. And so there's, there's, there's a famous piece of music called the Well-Tempered Clavier, Bach. Bach. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was what led to, I believe, the present standard 
in the way we divide those frequencies on all instruments now. But even though it's division, it's not, it's not like 440 and 482. It's like 440 and 481.3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not, we can't get it perfect. I mean, there's no way to get a perfect set of skin. So we have to approximate it. But the human ear makes up for that, you know. By the way, Thomas Thomas is our technical person here. You can't see him, but he is a very fine guitarist and knows music a lot. And so, Thomas, if you want to interrupt or interject or interfere uh, at any time, please do. You're welcome to. Anything more on the musical wisdom of the Greeks, ancient Greeks? Gregorian chant. Well, simply before you move to Gregorian chant, you just want to, she points out that the Greek uh, musical tradition then became part of the European Middle Ages musical tradition, so much so that Boethius's book became the standard music theory textbook throughout the Middle Ages. And I never knew Boethius was a musician. I knew his constellation of philosophy and uh, that he died for the faith and all that, but I didn't know anything about his musical contribution and what a huge contribution that turned out to be. It did. And, you know, and let's, let's not cancel our culture. I mean, there's been a lot of evil in the church, and we're part of it in the present church. But we have to acknowledge the church for the good that she did in fostering music, because as she points out in this book, Western music derives from a Gregorian chant with also, after the chant, which was a melodic thing, only one, you know, it was not harmonic, with the Greek contribution, gave us what we have now. It's a, it's, by the way, if you go to Beijing and want to go to a musical symphony, what do you hear? Western music. Bach, Mozart. Because, I mean, God bless them for all they've done, especially in art uh, and beautiful calligraphy. But they couldn't possibly have had symphonic music because they were, they were limited by the tonal scale which they had. Gregorian chant. I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. I want to say about Gregorian chant because we think as Catholics that Gregorian chant comes from St. Gregory the Great, who was Pope from 590, I think, to 604. And it does. However, one day in our old offices, which overlooked the northern part of the city, including Temple Emmanuel, I was thinking about my breviary and the Psalms. And asked myself the question, well, wait a minute, these psalms were songs. I wonder what it sounded like. So I called the rabbi in Temple Emmanuel. I said, Rabbi, Father Festival here, look, do you still sing the psalms in your synagogue? No, no, we don't sing them anymore. Well, do you know, do you know what they sounded like when people did sing them? No, I don't, but you call this number 1-800-Judaism, he said. It still works, by the way. So I call this number. It's a Jewish information center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. At least it was at the time. So I asked him the same question. What does it sound like when the Psalms are sung, say, the time of Christ? Uh, we don't know, but you call this rabbi in Manhattan. He really knows. So I called this rabbi in Manhattan, you know, and it's a long conversation. In those days, you had to pay for long-distance calls. So I was getting a little nervous because he's very talkative, but very informative. So, well, no, rabbi, look, do you have any idea what did it sound like around the time of Jesus Christ, the Jew, when the Jewish people sang the Psalms. He said, well, that's simple, Father. I said, what is it? He said, Gregorian chant. He says, you got it from us. I said, really? So I called my friend Billy, Bill Martin. You know William Martin? He, yes, he, he's at Stanford. Professor of Music at Stanford University for years. Uh, 
And I, he has a Gregorian choir. I said, Bill, is this true? He said, oh, yeah. He said, the, the original Gregorian melodies are really the Jewish psalm tones. What did Gregory do? Gregory organized them and then added to them, you know, and, and made them more universal in the church. But we got them from the Jews. So I want to say that. And a second thing I want to say, because before Gregorian chant came, that was 590 to say 604. Today, recording on the Feast of St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose has a lot to, you know, to, to, that we can be proud of. But one thing, he was in the fourth century, which was which was filled by the Arian heresy. Okay, so more than half of the of the bishops did not believe that Jesus was divine. You know, we think things are bad now. Let's highlight that more than half. half. And he's the Anglican Church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you, you want to read about that? There's a wonderful book by Newman called "The Arians of the Fourth Century." And you think things are bad now? Well, they are, but it's not new that they're bad. But one of the things that made Arius so popular was that he took popular songs at the time and he put his heretical verses, he made religious songs out of them and made heretical verses out of them. They made it very popular. And that was probably the main source of the spread of the Aaron Heresy among the people. So what did Ambrose do? Pop music. Ambrose took those songs and he put orthodox lyrics to them. And and that was one of the ways that the Aaron Harris was combated, you know, along with Athanasius, the great, you know, who resisted it all the time. Anyway, I just want to say that about Ambrose before we got a Gregorian chant, because Ambrose comes before that. But I, I would I would like to, uh, def I, I do want to comment upon what you just said, but I would like to actually defer to Vivian, who uh, I, I think that maybe uh, we've been squeezing her out a bit. So I'd like to no. squeeze her in. Oh, no, please, <laughs> please go ahead. <laughs> well, again, I love what you've just said about Gregorian chant coming from the Jews, because what do we have here? The first two chapters, right? Our understanding of music coming from Athens via two St. Clements and, um, and Boethius, and sort of mathematical, philosophical understanding of music. And then Gregorian chant comes from the, the, the Jews and, and, their, and their liturgical worship. So we have, you know, Jerusalem and Rome, and we have Athens and Rome coming together here. And, and, and it's, I just love the way that the history is coming to life, as, as the way we're look, looking at this book and this history. I love it. But she doesn't mention the Jews explicitly. She just says, following ancient cultures, Gregorian chant is monophonic. She, uh, point. she she never mentions the Jews, and I, because I knew this story of Father Fessios, because that's because I tell it again and again. No, but you, <laughs> but that was about the time you were teaching all of us Gregorian chant, all of us Ignatius Press, and it so of, it's a sin of omission. That's that that it would have actually enriched it. That's a good point. Um, there's a problem with the book, but I'm pleased that it's not a problem with this conversation. Yes, and the only other thing I want to say about this chapter is that just the final the final paragraph, the final two sentences which is just wonderful. Gregorian chant is a totally humble art that also happens to be sublime prayer. Mm -hmm. There's no other reason for which it was composed than the praise of God. I underlined that too. And it's right. humble, not only for all the reasons, technical reasons that she explains musically, but it's also humble in that anyone can sing it. Exactly. This does not need a trained choir. Uh, the way Palestrina and some of these great polyphonic composers, that music can only be sung by trained people. But Gregorian chant can be sung by anybody. 
distinguish as she distinguishes. I agree wholly with that, and I've experienced that in my own life as a priest. However, in this chapter, she does talk about the three forms of Gregorian chant, the syllabic, the pneumatic, and the melismatic. And the syllabic chant, which has one note per syllable, it's very easy to learn that. The pneumatic, in which a neum, by the way, N-E-U-M, is a little square note. It's a note in Gregorian chant. You can have two or three notes on, on the same syllable. That becomes a little more difficult. But the uh, melismatic, in which you can have a syllable with, with 26 notes on it, that needed to acquire for Okay. And so, to me, the ideal is that, per se, the proper, uh, the introit, you know, for the communion hymn, let the choir sing that with all that sort of stuff. But as she says in here, uh, for psalms and things like that, you had the choir singing something kind of complicated, but then the people would sing a refrain that was uh, syllabic, and everybody could learn it, you know. And I've experienced this, you know, as a priest in several places. You show them that the basic chant for the Curie, the Sanctus, the Anuste, and then the Gloria too, and the Credo, it, it only takes them three or four times before they know it. They don't need any music. They just sing it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never heard as complete, you know, volumetric, let's say, fills the church singing as when the people just sing simple chant together. Because, mm-hmm. you know, so I mean, I, I don't go to many churches. I'm a priest in my own mass, but I know when I used to visit, I mean, they're always got to have a new hymn every week and you don't know it and, and uh, who sings it. And no, it's not. It doesn't work. It's not as beautiful, and it's not as singable, in my humble opinion. I want to mention a footnote on page 17 in this chapter, footnote 8. It says, in the Novus Ordo Mass, which is the Mass of Paul VI, the Mass we see in Rome in our parishes, the gradual is usually placed by the responsorial psalm. So between the first reading, epistle, first reading, and the gospel, we now have a responsorial psalm. You used to have the gradual. Now, the gradual was taken from Scripture and often from the Psalms. But the gradual, gratis, by the way, let me, is a step. And so you're moving up to the altar now. And so you go from step to step. The gradual was often very long, melismatic, you know, and people couldn't possibly follow, it seems to me. However, when this beautiful Latin chant, that you don't understand the meaning of the words, you can actually pray. It's like Bacham music for prayer. And so... I'm not opposed to the idea in the liturgy to have this musical background of chant uh, while you're able to reflect on the reading. That's good. But after the council is replaced by the Psalms, and I think the Psalms are among the most beautiful prayers of the church, inspired by God. In fact, if you are praying the Psalms and you're singing the glory chant, you're as close as you can get the way, Mary, the way Mary prayed and Jesus prayed, because they prayed the Psalms and they sang them. So when you sing those Psalms in glory and chant, you are as close as you get united your mind and your heart to the mind and heart of Mary and her son Jesus. So I just love the fact that in the form of the liturgy, we now have a psalm, you know, between the readings. It's beautiful. And they're well chosen. Those It's a responsorial psalm. You check that first reading, and how should I respond to that? Mm-hmm. You look at the psalm. It, it tells you in God's own language, you know, what the proper response is to that reading. It's beautiful. You know something we've, uh, 
I think we've come to the our time limit here. Uh, let's be prepared for next week to go up to chapter, uh, and including chapter 15, that is 8 to 15, but we will take up our discussion starting chapter 3. Is that okay? Sounds good. good. Thanks, everyone. God bless you. See you next week at the Forum Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.